So I have it on good authority that at least one day each week is a Sunday. You'll want to be ready for it. And I think I can help you a little bit with that. This is Get Ready for Sunday, a preview of the scripture readings for the upcoming Sunday Masses in a Roman Catholic Church near you. I am Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. Thanks for clicking in. In these few minutes, we'll look at the scripture for the Mass of the 19th Sunday in Ordinary Time, August 8th, 2021. As has become something of a habit, I'll start with the second reading for the Mass. Why do that, you ask? It's simple, really. Of the three principal scripture passages in a Sunday or a Sunday Vigil Mass, it is typical that the first reading, generally from the Hebrew Scriptures, and the third reading, always from one of the four Gospels, share a common theme. That theme is usually reinforced in other prayers during the Mass. One could say it is the core message of any particular liturgy. It makes sense, then, to put those two together for discussion. Further, the second reading is taken from the writing of St. Paul or another of the early apostolic voices in the foundation of Christian communities. Those passages generally address some aspect of building and maintaining the community of the Church in peace, harmony, and as a spiritual home and source of missionary strength for disciples of Jesus. That's the reason for looking at this second reading separately. It's about how we understand ourselves as disciples in community working toward the realization of divine peace and justice in this life. By contrast, the first and third readings tend to be more directly about God's outreach to humanity, its history throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and its personification in the life, teaching, ministry, passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, let's get to it. This Sunday, in the second reading, we continue our journey through the letter to the Ephesians attributed to St. Paul. This is a very short passage today, but one rich in significant content. Recall that the community in Ephesus was made up of men and women from all over the Mediterranean world and beyond. Languages, social norms, modes of dress, of every description intermingled here. There was great potential for misunderstanding and from misunderstanding conflict. This passage is another in a series of exhortations on how to get along, and it contains a checklist about how to accomplish peace within the community. Here, then, is a reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you were sealed for the day of redemption. All bitterness, fury, anger, shouting, and reviling must be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, as God has forgiven you in Christ. So be imitators of God as beloved children, and live in love as Christ loved us and handed himself over for us, 
as a sacrificial offering to God for a fragrant aroma. The Word of the Lord. Well, right off the bat, we have a rather unusual admonition. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This introduces two ideas that are most likely far outside the experience of these new followers of Jesus. First, is a strong implication of a personal relationship with God, something certainly not the norm for the pagan gods demanding sacrifice and spreading around their curses. Second, this is a God who might be grieved? To be offended is certainly within the wheelhouse of the so-called gods these folks have known in the past. But to have the capacity to be grieved by the behavior of one's followers is quite different. Grief suggests not only a personal connection with, but also a certain deep level of affection for one's followers. Don't you think? Quite obviously, these are baptized followers of Christ. The reference to anointing in the reading is a big clue to that. We interrupt this scripture study to bring you a bit of church history and sacramental theology. We have reliable records going back at least to the third century describing the baptism rite with its anointing. This is essentially the same rite we celebrate in the modern church. The earliest baptisms included an anointing that, within a few centuries, split off into the sacrament of confirmation. This was largely due to the growth spurt in the church, notably after Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be the state religion of the empire. In the earliest centuries of the formation of the church, all three of what we now call the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and one's first participation in the Eucharistic meal, all these occurred within a single liturgy, as adults were brought into the church at the Easter Vigil Mass, and a bishop was the presider for all of these actions. That was the case across the entire church. With the massive influx of new Christians after Constantine made Christianity not just politically acceptable, but politically advantageous, it became impossible for bishops to maintain their privilege of presiding over all that was demanded of the church. In the Eastern Church, the bishops delegated the faculty, the authority, to preside over all these initiation sacraments to their presbyters, their priests. Still today, the Eastern Churches celebrate all three initiation sacraments together at one time. In the Roman churches, however, the bishops did delegate to their priests, but retained to themselves the authority to preside at confirmation. That had the effect of this anointing, this strengthening with the fullness of the Holy Spirit, becoming separated in time from the first two of the initiation sacraments. An additional contributor to the separation in time was the spread of Christianity from the large cities into the countryside. Remember, we're dealing with second and third century modes of transportation. It took a while for the bishops to make their rounds. 
as the time between baptism and confirmation grew to be significantly longer, a theology of the sacrament of confirmation developed, pointing toward a maturation of the candidates, the confirmandi. While there is, for lack of a better word at the moment, an introduction to the Holy Spirit with an anointing at baptism, the fullness of the Spirit's gifts and strengths come with confirmation. It is here that one is sealed with the Holy Spirit, capable of greater fidelity and perseverance in one's continuing lifetime journey of faith and witness to Christ. Over many centuries, celebration of confirmation in the Roman churches has grown into a very wide variety of practices around the world. In a typical American diocese, the restored rite of Christian initiation for adults brings all three sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and first Eucharist, back again into a single liturgy at the Easter Vigil reclaiming the pattern of the earliest communities. Local pastors receive formally delegated authority from their bishop to preside at these masses. The reasons should be obvious. In Tucson, for example, our bishop would otherwise need to be present at more than 70 churches spread over 42,000 square miles in a single evening. For infants and children in the Western Church, these three sacraments generally remain to one degree or another separated in time. In our diocese, a child might typically be baptized during infancy, receive first Eucharist around age seven, and confirmation somewhere in their high school or college years. Drive into Arizona's junior diocese in Phoenix, and you will typically encounter infant baptism First Eucharist and Confirmation celebrated together when a child is around third grade age. In Mexico, the typical practice is baptism and confirmation celebrated together during infancy, and First Eucharist comes later in childhood. You got to go with the flow of the local church. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Just don't demand consistency across the board. Enough of that. Back to the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians spells out some specific behaviors that would grieve the Holy Spirit. Bitterness, fury, anger, shouting, and reviling. They've all gotta go. Note, please, that these are not offenses against God directly. These describe how we act toward one another. Likewise, malice. Not an action, but a character of actions and purpose, bad intentions toward another, not acceptable in the life of a disciple. Within the context of this letter, the message is that all individual actions either strengthen or weaken the community. The writer encourages specifically kindness, compassion, and forgiveness as the behaviors that contribute to community strength and peace. To forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ is the real challenge in my personal opinion. There was a popular country song a few years ago called The Truth About Men that for me shed some light on divine forgiveness. While you and I, 
well, okay, while I usually struggle to forgive even when an offender promises that changed behavior will be the case in the future, God forgives, Jesus suffers, in the full understanding of our propensity to re-offend. The refrain of that song is the snide remark that the truth about men is, we ain't wrong, we ain't sorry, and we're probably going to do it again. The Ephesians are enjoined to imitate God and love as Christ loved, to become as Christ did, a fragrant aroma enriching even the air we breathe. Now let's look at the central thematic readings for this Mass. We start with the first reading, which records a pivotal moment in the life of Israel's great early prophet, Elijah. He seems to be in a mood. Here is the reading from the first book of Kings. Elijah went on a day's journey into the desert until he came to a broom tree and sat beneath it. He prayed for death, saying, This is enough, O Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay down and fell asleep under the broom tree. But then an angel touched him and ordered him to get up and eat. Elijah looked, and there at his head was a hearth cake and a jug of water. After he ate and drank, he lay down again. But the angel of the Lord came back a second time touched him and ordered, Get up and eat, else the journey will be too long for you. He got up, ate and drank, then, strengthened by that food, he walked forty days and forty nights to the mountain of God, Horeb. The Word of the Lord. So somebody's cranky, but at least he did get some sustenance before he heads off on the long journey ahead. Elijah's mood was likely influenced heavily by the events recorded just before the beginning of this passage. You see, he had just engaged in a challenge which he himself initiated with the prophets of the often-mentioned pagan god Baal. This was for the edification of King Ahab, Israel's seventh king and husband of Jezebel, a Canaanite. Elijah, or really the God of Israel, genuinely showed up the Baal team. By the way, there were 450 members of the Baal team of prophets. The two test subjects in this challenge, the God of Israel and Baal, were invoked to see which would ignite a sacrificial altar. One altar had been constructed for each. On each altar lay half of a freshly sacrificed young bull. Baal's prophets were up first. They danced around, waved their arms, shouted and sang out, even cut themselves. Nothing. No action. All the while, the story tells us, Elijah was pouring water over the wood on his altar. When he prayed with quiet confidence to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, down came a blaze so strong that it evaporated all the water, consumed the wood, and even scorched the sand and the stones surrounding the sacrifice. As punctuation, God's flame consumed the rival sacrifice and the rival altar as well. 
vague statement by God and Elijah. Oh, and Elijah ordered the execution of all 450 of the Canaanite prophets. This did not end well for Elijah. Ahab, despite what he had just witnessed, allowed his queen Jezebel to hurl death threats at Elijah if and when her troops could capture him. So the scene in this reading is no casual stroll for Elijah. He did a great job, and this is what awaits him. He was in a mood. I don't think the word kvetch was in use at that time and in that place, but Elijah hits the shade of a rather scruffy tree and does some kvetching to God. Take me now, Lord. And could you blame him? As Elijah sleeps in the shade, a messenger of God awakens him and shows him food and water. Elijah has a nosh and falls back asleep. No rest for him yet, however. His messenger awakens him again, tells him to fuel up, get up, and get going. Off goes Elijah to meet God on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. It takes him 40 days. And there's that number again. Hear the echoes out of the history of the Jewish people? Forty days for Elijah to cross the desert? Forty years of wandering in the desert for Moses and the new nation as they came out of Egyptian captivity? Both Moses and Elijah meet God on Sinai. Both are sustained on their journeys by miraculously provided food. Elijah's service as God's prophet was long and effective. He is the great early prophet of the northern kingdom. His service to the Lord is rewarded in that he does not die, but is taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. His return to this world is believed to be a harbinger of the coming of the Messiah. This puts him into many connections with events and persons in the Gospels. Next week, we celebrate the Assumption of Mary, brought body and soul into God's presence. Consider all the major events in the life of Jesus that center around the Passover feast. In Jewish homes across millennia, on that night, the family's table is set with one extra place in front of one extra chair. This is just in case Elijah returns and needs another nosh. Our responsorial psalm, taken from Psalm 34, is a most fitting link between the life-sustaining and empowering meal provided to Elijah by God and Jesus' discourse on the eternal life-granting meal that he will be for those who follow him. I'll read the refrain only twice at the beginning and the end of the selection. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be ever in my mouth. Let my soul glory in the Lord. The lowly will hear me and be glad. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us together extol his name. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Look to him that you may be radiant with joy, and your faces may not blush with shame. When the afflicted man called out, the Lord heard, 
and from all his distress he saved him. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Taste and see how good the Lord is. Blessed the man who takes refuge in him. Taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And now we come to a reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. The Jews murmured about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? Do we not know his father and mother? Then how can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him, and I will raise him on the last day. It is written in the prophets, They shall all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to my Father and learns from him comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Gospel of the Lord. As a reminder, let's reset this scene, which is a continuation from last week. Jesus is in Capernaum in a synagogue. He is in discussion with people of his own childhood extended community. The people had pursued him after the great feeding of the 5,000 the day before, seeking more of the food he might provide them. Throughout the discussion, Jesus is working to move them off the simple and transitory needs of their physical bodies to consider their deeper hungers for spiritual fullness and intimate connection with God. He is speaking in images that they are misunderstanding. The people have engaged Jesus in a kind of public exchange where the intent is that one party will be the winner and one the loser. The people murmur against Jesus. The Greek word used here is the same one produced for the Greek translation of the Hebrew that recorded the murmuring of the newly freed Jews in the desert as they moved away from Egypt. Their first challenge of Jesus in this passage springs from their familiarity with his origins in the community. This same sort of refusal to take Jesus seriously because of their familiarity with his family is seen in each of the synoptic gospels as well. We know where you come from, fella. You can't possibly be who and what you claim to be. It's a natural objection for the casual observer to make. The culture of that time and place was one where an individual's status and occupation in the community was dependent upon the status and occupation of their parents. 
it was different from the view Americans like to claim, where there is equal opportunity across a wide spectrum of social and economic classes, where one might have a chance to earn their own advancement. Jesus, on the other hand, was expected to inherit his. As Joseph and Mary were regarded, so would he be regarded. Jesus calls God his Father, and asserts that those who come to believe in him must first be called by that Father. The conclusion to be drawn is that if one does not believe in Jesus, then that one must not have been called by or be in relationship with God. Here he also picks up a thread from Isaiah. It's chapter 54, verse 13 in Isaiah. All your children will be taught by the Lord. Here in John 6:45, it is, they shall all be taught by God. The implication is that those who know God will necessarily know Jesus. Jesus is continually trying to show the crowd from their shared tradition that his is a message and a mission of expanding the promises and the provisions given them by God throughout the nation's history. He refers to the manna that sustained the physical lives of their ancestors, drawing that out into his own promise of being a bread that goes beyond the physical and brings those who accept it into eternal life, a participation in the divine life of the Trinity. I think that's enough for now. I pray that you are able to be together with others for Mass this weekend, whether it's physically or online, as you are able. Please be careful with your health, physical and spiritual. There are risks out there for both. May you rest confidently in the knowledge of God's love for you. And may God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless you abundantly.